Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to your favorite pleasure delivery system, the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. On this week's show, Tom will be talking to the poet Nikki Giovanni, who has been around since the 1960s. Is she coming back? Has she ever been away? Maria Bastios talks to musician Ego Plum, the name he was born with. <laughs> Memoirist Dinah Lenny is here to tell us about one of her favorite books. And editing your friends is a minefield. Should you embrace it or avoid it? Tom and Lori, both editors at LARB, will talk to me, a lowly writer, about how they deal with this. More specifically, how they deal with me. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Hey, and Lori Weiner. Yo. Tom, you talked to Nikki Giovanni, the famous poet at the 2015 LA Writers Conference. What did you two talk about? We talked about a lot of different things, um, and we've got the entire uh, edited version of the interview online, the video uh, version. One of the things we talked about was her relationship with Muhammad Ali. Ali and I were friends. One of the things that happened, as you know, with Ali, he got stripped of his belt. And when that happened, we had a mutual business partner, actually, Richard. And Richard called me to say, you know, he says, why don't you travel with Ali? You've got to be kidding. Of course, I, I mean, who wouldn't love to do that? But Ali doesn't fly. I don't know if he flies now, but he didn't. And so he went by bus. I don't have time to do that. And so I go, I fly, <laughs> you know. But, of course, I had a son at that point, and he didn't. And that particular show... With Soul, we were in, and I can share this, we were in the studio, and Thomas um, is probably not the best disciplined person. I mean, you know, I'm not good at that. And Thomas was running around and running around. Ali is not used to it, and he didn't have a son at that point. When he had a son, he realized the difference. And he stopped Thomas and just kind of picked him up and whacked him on the behind and said, you know, sit down. And Thomas came over to me, because he's a little bit, you know, he said, Mommy, Mommy, Hammond, he called Hammond Ali, Hammond Ali hit me. I said, well, Thomas, that's, that's between you men. You know, why are you bringing that to me? You, you need to go settle that. It has nothing to do with me. And he thought and thought for a minute. You could see it, little head. Going, and he went over, and Ali was talking to somebody. You know, Thomas, the little boy. And he said, Hammond Ali, Hammond Ali. And Ali looks down and said, what, Thomas? And Thomas leaned back and hit him in the knee. <laughs> he started laughing. I said, wait till you get your own son. We saw a clip of her interviewing Muhammad Ali on this TV show from, the, I think it was 1969 and 1970. It was um, called Soul! Explanation Point. She was a frequent host on it, and um, it was famous for just getting a lot of black artists and thinkers and politicians on in front of an audience that otherwise might not have seen them. And she's so at home in her in herself, as a, you know, she's in her... 20s, in, in, her, in her early 20s at the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. And so I asked her about that. I, I do that very well for <laughs> whatever else is going on. I put on a show in Lincoln Center that was incredible, and we sold out. And so when Ellis decided to do Soul at the Center, he quite naturally came to me. I knew Packy McGinnis. I went to see Packy, and I said, hi, Packy. I, <laughs> I would like Lincoln Center. What do I have to do? And he gave me a price, and I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. <laughs> I don't have any money. What I want you to do is to find a way for me to have Lincoln Center, and we'll, we'll put the price wherever you want it, and, and we'll have it. And so that's how we did it. Wilson Pickett was um, 
on my show with me. And I just went to pick and it's like, you know, I really need you to do this. And he was like, yeah, okay. He said, well, is Aretha Franklin going to come? I said, you know, Aretha's not coming. That's, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I had no way to get Aretha. And, that, and I was sorry about that. And so if you ever get to see that show, you'll see that when Pickett comes on, he's, I wish Aretha was here. <laughs> Everybody just cracked up. So when Ellis decided to do Soul at the Center, he came to say, you know, we're doing uh, Soul, which was the first TV show. It was like Ed Sullivan. And, you know, how do I, what, what, what would I think he could get this done? And so I was very willing to work, I mean, more than willing to work with Ellis because it was, it was great to do that. And it's nice always uh, to have people, you know, that, that will actually listen to what you're suggesting. And it, it worked, you know, it, it really did. We probably could have balanced it more, but that would be another level of decision about how you put a show together. One of the reasons she's really interesting to me as a poet is because of her early use of music in her career. Would you talk about that a little bit and perhaps how it's something of a precursor to uh, hip hop? Yeah, uh, people call her the grandmother of hip hop uh, because she was she was she was a pioneer in in just using jazz soundtracks behind her uh, behind her poetry. Uh, she recorded five or six or seven albums in the seventies. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every one hundred years falls into the center, giving divine perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with a lot. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to cool my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pain created the I've done a lot of interviews for, for Los Angeles Review of Books. This, this, this is one of my favorites. She was just such an uh, a incredibly inspiring presence and uh, just a warm, great person. It was just a, a delight. You can't catch me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported L.A. Review of Books. Kim Gordon, the bass player for Sonic Youth, has published a new memoir called Girl in a Band. We're discussing it with our next guest, Dinah Lenny, who is a memoirist herself, the author of a book called The Object Parade, which came out last fall. I wanted to discuss this with Dinah because at a dinner party a couple of years ago, right after Patti Smith's book came out, Just Kids, her memoir about life in New York in the 70s with uh, the photographer Robert Maplethorpe, Dinah and I got into uh, a wrestling match. The, uh, the linguini was flying across the table by the time we were done. And I thought it would be really fun to talk to you about Kim Gordon's book. Now, you and I have not exchanged a word about this book yet. So my first question is, why did you hate this book? <laughs> well, Seth, I didn't hate all of it. I hated a lot of it. I, I guess I, I mean, I guess what I want to ask you is explain to me why I should love this book. Uh, I had a very mixed reaction to the book, but given our history with the Patti Smith right, right. memoir, I thought it would be really fun to kick this around with you. Or okay, kick- let me say that I think that this book makes Patti Smith's book look like the National Book Award winner that it is. I mean, I feel like, you know, compared to this book, and it's not that I don't think Kim Gordon can write, because in isolated places she can, but... Oh, um, <laughs> can, I just, can I just say what was great about that sentence you said, is you managed to crap on both books in one very elegant sentence. And the National Book Award. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> See, this is, this is why we wanted to get you on the mic. Yeah, no, I mean, so you know, and since you and I talked about Patti Smith's book, I have gone back to it, and... I have to say that I think there are things about Patti Smith's book 
that are better than I gave it credit for. I also think just in terms of her her disposition in the world, it's it's more purple than mine. She's more interested in things like God and destiny, and she has this you know sense of herself as an artist, and that's part of what you and I bickered about. But yet she structured a real book. I think it's a it's a memoir in the traditional sense of you know it's a it's events through the through the lens of a relationship, whereas Kim Gordon's book sort of I think it starts really well. And then it becomes, you know, kind of, and then, and then, and then, and gossipy, and she's got an agenda, and she's mad at her husband, and I got bored. I got bored, and I think if you're not a fan, you get bored. Okay, wait, can we, I'm sorry, can you just tell us what the nature of your disagreement was about the Patti Smith book? I thought it worked, and Diana didn't. You know, Seth did convince me to go back, to rethink. It's not that I reread the book, but I rethought it. And it does sort of, as memoir should, it covers a slice of life as opposed to the whole thing, whereas somehow or other, you know, Kim Gordon, I think, got trapped into kind of an autobiography way of thinking. Like, what, what, What's the difference between an autobiography and a memoir, too? So for me, an autobiography is sort of the whole nine yards. You know, I was born here, and, and then I went to school here, and then this happened to me, and that happened to me. Whereas a memoir is about a slice. It's a relationship through the lens of an event, or it's events through the lens of a, of a relationship. And Yeah, and we expect the memoir to have something to say about something other than the person who's writing right, the memoir. Right, right. I mean, I think the form has taken a bad rap, but if it redeems itself... Unless you're famous, unless it's a celebrity memoir, if it redeems itself, it's on the level of language or insight. And in the case of a celebrity, you know, you can afford to be lazier because you have a fan base. There's something interesting about the nostalgia that people have for that punk moment. It's a, it's a very brief moment. When very the, brief. Thank when God. The punk yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you have nostalgia for the punk moment? No, I, I, I was not paying attention. Me I neither. It. So one of my questions about a book like this is, should people be writing books for fans or, or should the motivation be different? You know, I mean, did she want to write a good book or did she want to write a book for people who are, uh. you know, remembering the punk moment? But but hang on a minute. Yeah. Let's 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 really situate yeah. this in time first. She's not from the punk moment. The punk era is not her era. The punk era was really from the mid to the late 70s. Sonic Youth came together in the 80s. Right, right. So they are not of the same ilk as television and the Ramones, Blondie, and those CBGBs But bands. they're trying for it. It's the Emperor's New Clothes. It's uh... Well, that's interesting. So you're saying they're trying to be something they're not and glom onto an era that they were not, in fact, a part of? Yes, I think so. Or, you know, there's some sort of feigning to, you know, we're the New Deal, but not new enough. Are they grunge? No. What are they? They're, they're, Sonic Youth is really their own genre in a way. They were the first band to break big that started using noise as a really important component of their music. Then along came bands like My, My Bloody Valentine that built on what Sonic Youth was doing. And if you're interested in rock history, the fact is they are actually pretty important. You know, putting aside what you think of the music. Actually, How were they different from Nirvana? Well, Nirvana came later. But Nirvana sort of did convert. It did turn over. It was it was critically and popularly. I mean, I'm aware of Nirvana right. in a way well, that I'm not aware of Sonic well, Youth. Well, Nirvana broke on MTV to a degree that Sonic Youth did not. But you could make the argument: no Sonic Youth, no Nirvana. Uh huh. Actually, that's that's how it worked chronologically. And you sort of feel like she wants to make that argument mm -hmm. in the book. She really 
has great affection for Kurt Cobain, none at all for Courtney Love, and yeah. makes that clear. To be fair to Kim Gordon, they were and, and remain cr- critically acclaimed. Sonic Youth is, they're, they're a critical darling, in fact, uh-huh. and, and, and have been for 25 years. And should be. In your opinion. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a huge Sonic Youth fan, but I get their contribution. And it works because it works on the viscera. Yeah. That's how it operates. It works on the viscera if you're a certain age at a certain, exactly you know, right. a certain but, time in relation to that but, historical moment. Yeah, exactly. And if you, I mean, we have to remember that the people it was working for were younger than the people in the band, sure. right? So what you have is a bunch of people sort of in, you know, late 20s, early 30s when this begins, and they're they're pretty to look at. I mean, she's beautiful. She's dolled to the nines, even though she keeps sort of claiming this androgyny and, you know, I didn't feel like a girl. I felt like one of the boys, she says. But meanwhile, you know, there she is with no clothes on and lots of makeup on and she's bouncing around and she's pose- <laughs> posing. And, you know, you know, there's kind of this pretense to, we're so violent, we don't care about anything. And, you know, it's like, who's this appealing to? Lots of people, apparently. Yeah, so then but then that's what I want to hear about in the book. You know, tell me something about this music that I don't already know. But she doesn't have the sophistication to do that as a writer, obviously. And yet she does. I will say again, she writes very beautifully about place, about mm-hmm. L.A. and about mm-hmm. New York. She does. Well, and, and time. She evokes that, that Manson-era Los Angeles mm-hmm. pr- pretty well. Thanks, Donna. Thank you, Seth. Our friend Maria Bustios interviewed L.A. musician Ego Plum, who, among other things, claims to be the grandson of Leon Trotsky and Frida Kahlo. And I'm thinking maybe not, but... Tom, I need you to straighten this out for our LARB listeners. Uh, I have not done any DNA tests. I think we're going to get Maury Povich on the job, but uh, he's a really interesting recording artist and and, uh, writer, composer of film, stage, and television music. And Maria did an interview with him which we have on, on the site. Uh, here's a little clip. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing you're talking about, narrative, because I do the work of illiterates. You know what I mean? I, I'm in the business of just trying to harvest emotions. You know, So I'm trying to sort of uh, transcend language with music. I mean, that's what all musicians do, I think. We try to tell stories and sound. I focus more on sort of the emotional needs, let's say, in a story like Harvey Beek's cartoon that I'm working on. You know, capturing sort of the emotional needs of every scene and every episode is primary, even more so than what it sounds like, more so than the instruments or or the language, basically. When you're working on just music of your own, Mm -hmm. like for your orchestra, um, do you, can you tell me a little bit of the difference between how you would approach something where there's like a pre-established narrative like this Mm -hmm. and something that just comes from your own mind and heart sure yeah it's very very different i mean here uh when i'm working on a cartoon um you know i'm completely at the service of the story and the creator and you know i that's something i really have always liked i like being you know the wingman or the or the person that sort of is helping facilitate tell a story um and that's what scoring really is it's not about putting yourself on the pedestal or letting your music shine it's about letting the story shine or the characters, or whatever it is that you're trying to let the audience feel. You have to have very little ego, and uh, you have to have um, enough of a sense to know that you know the music is not the important thing here. You know, you have to be able to take a back seat, and also you have to know that you know not everything you write is precious, and that at any moment something that you slaved over could be 
you know, snipped out and thrown out. When I write music for myself, when I perform, that's completely well the story that's in my head. And that's great because it's it's limitless. It's sort of only bounded by maybe the limitations of your musicians, the instruments you own, or what you could actually put up on a stage. But that's really exciting because it's like you could you could really go anywhere, anywhere you want. But even when you do that, even when I do that, I like to create certain parameters. You know, I recorded a a project once where I said I'm only going to use these three instruments and I'm going to record a dozen songs just with these three things, and that'll be it. I want to try and get to. I think it's kind of hard even for me to articulate, but like the difference between I'm I'm trying to think like a composer I don't know like Bartok or somebody who I really admire. There's something similar going on. There's like a narrative storytelling feeling. I mean, I think I'm really drawn to sort of like Hinastera or Bartok or as opposed to sort of like Brahms or something mm-hmm. where like the emotion is more diffuse hmm. and feels like there's less thoughts in it. Like it's not leading you through a path of thoughts the same way. Hmm. Interesting. I think, you know, I, I try not to rely on thinking and more on feeling. Mm-hmm. And, and I... When I listen to music, I don't analyze it. I don't. I, I. I. don't even like music theory. I've never studied it. I don't care for it. You know. I because music is completely just an emotional thing that I want to react to. I don't want to analyze. You know. Is this yeah. a major scale that's doing this going into right. that? You know. It doesn't. That doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, I get that. But I, I'm talking more about like we feel things in order. Yeah. There's a crescendo. There's a. There's a beginning to a. A feeling, a series of feelings can make a narrative. Right. Well, okay. In a show like this, I mean, there is a clear narrative. You know, we have an objective with every episode. We have to sort of achieve a certain goal emotionally and uh, with the story. And usually it's even bookend. You know, it starts a certain way and then we sort of come back to where we were. And musically, I'll try to do that in certain ways where, like, you know, whatever little thematic element I use in the beginning, we sort of revisit at the end. So if you were to listen to the score just on its own, you would, you would actually hear, you know, the sort of a feeling of familiar, familiarity here and here, and then maybe like a big emotional peak in the middle. I've listened to scores, in particular, Carl Stalling, who, who was the musical director for Warner Brothers. Those scores are amazing to listen to without the cartoons because they, the, the images they paint are so vivid. I mean, they're intense. They're overwhelming. Uh, really, really beautiful. I mean, that's probably the greatest example of of storytelling through sound. Just thinking about it now, it's just, it's, it's too much. It's just the, the best. He really is the best. That's Carl Stalling. So yeah, people should look up that guy and listen to him. Vividness. But, oh yeah. exactly right. This is exactly what I'm talking about, where like you, like somebody is telling you something through sound that you just, I don't, it's very concrete or right, alive. Right, right. Yeah, and it, you know what, and it doesn't have to necessarily be the truth of what the story was. I mean, I remember, I don't remember the Warner Brothers cartoons Exactly. I mean, I think, oh, is that the turtle doing this or the rabbit doing But it almost doesn't matter because it's just the, the emotions that you're feeling, the same ones you felt when you were a kid. You feel it again at that moment, and that's sort of the truth that really matters, not really what's actually happening in the sink. Oh, yeah. You know? I'm a huge fan of those cartoons. I mean, I grew up on that. I did not realize that the sophistication, you know, you think, oh, this is for children, this is for me, like I'm a child, and later things will get more sophisticated. They never were going to get more sophisticated. No, it was all downhill <laughs> from there. Yeah. It really was. Uh, Ego Plum, that was Ego Plum. He is also the musical director for the Ebola Orchestra. Whose version of You Give Me Fever we're all familiar with. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
My name is Seth Greenland, and I am here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported L.A. Review of Books. One of the things that all of us at Los Angeles Review of Books face every day is pitches from friends, pitches from people who, for one reason or another, we feel close to and and have to make decisions. You know, it's been a problem in book reviews forever, right? They used to call it the New York Review of of each other's books, right? Mm-hmm. And it's something that log rolling, of course, is a, is an ancient art in in literary circles, venerable tradition. Yeah. What do we do about it? Anything, or do we just become part of the problem? Well, I think you bring up a very interesting question, which is how honest can we be with people with whom we're working and hope to continue to work with in the future. Well, I mean, I think you're talking about two different things. Log rolling is you give me a blurb for the back of my book and I give you a blurb for the back of yours. And it seems kind of harmless. I mean, I could imagine it would be awkward if your friend wrote a terrible book and you really didn't want to blurb it, but you know, you probably would. You could say, this is a book! (laughs) Exclamation point. This book. You know who's going to come out of this looking great? The author. (laughs) That's the great actor thing. When you go backstage and you right. see an actor in a play that you hated and you don't know what to say, you, you, you are going to come out of this looking great. <laughs> I'm not sure what that even means. It means nothing. Yeah, it's a dog whistle. The yeah. other thing is when when people come to us with pieces that they want us to run or ideas that, and, and we don't like those pieces or those ideas. That's a different question. And it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but I, I'm pretty good at saying no to friends if I don't want what they're selling with a reason, you know, like I'd love to do something else with you. This doesn't work for this reason. I mean, I feel like that's, you know, our right as that's why, you ne- that's why you never take my pieces. That's interesting. I, yeah. Well, we're <laughs> going to, we're going to work on okay. it. You'll, you'll get better. <laughs> also, that's the job of any editor, whether you know the person, whether you're related to them, whether you've never met them before, you need to give at least a somewhat honest assessment of the value of their piece and the degree to which it meets the needs that you have at that moment for the publication. And conversely, there are times when I've gotten reviews that I think were needlessly harsh and, and I disagreed with. I'd read the book and I thought, no, you're absolutely wrong about this book. I want critics to have their own voice. I want critics to be able to, to disagree with me. But uh, it's a it's a tough kind of edit to figure out how to say, well, you know, you've kind of made that criticism already. Let's not make it twice or three times or four times. That's a fair editorial note. It is. Also gratuitous meanness, you know, and then, Mm -hmm. which is hard because sometimes gratuitous meanness is very funny. And And so do you want, yeah, do you want to take that away from a critic's palate? Not really. Everybody loves a horrible pan. You guys are editors and, and I am not. So I would like to ask you, really the question is, how do you say no to your friends? What I often do is I say, I think this would be great at Outlet X. And I try to mean it. That is, I do think that this piece would work great at, at the rumpus. How does, so how does LARB work when people submit who don't know anyone? They come in through the through the system. We mm-hmm. have people reading every email. And do unsolicited submissions occasionally make it into Absolutely, the, all yes. the time. And I think of it as a Los Angeles trait. When I, I worked in publishing in the 1980s, I worked at Knopf, and I read The Slush Pile. That was one of my jobs. And we were expected to turn down everything. I mean, you could not bring a new manuscript to an editor at Knopf unless it was just, you know, mind-blowingly amazing. You couldn't. 
you know, we all know that that's part of the system in New York. If you're not one of the writers that Robert Silvers uses for um, the New York Review of Books, you're not getting into the New York Review of Books, no matter how great and perfect your idea is for it. And the fact is that a lot of stuff that comes in over the transom like that, they're first-time writers, first time doing this kind of writing, you know, like any anything else, practice helps, and it takes a lot of editing, it takes a lot of work to get the piece ready for publication, but... You know, I'm a teacher. <laughs> I've spent my life as a teacher. I like working with people. We, and, we, and call that, we call that a heroic edit. And then if the writer improves and comes back with a second piece that's much better, we're thrilled. And if comes back with a second piece that needs as much work, then we basically say goodbye at that point. Tom, you know me, and I always want to find out what the worst possible thing that happened was. And I'm curious in your role as uh, the editor-in-chief of LARB, have you had any gnarly moments with friends regarding uh, getting their material <laughs> into LARB? Aside from your your pieces? Yeah, aside from the things that I've done. Uh, all, all of which were gnarly encounters, and I apologize for that's, my part in the mess. You know what? I, we've got past that. I right? would just like you to know <laughs> I still haven't forgiven you. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Uh, in fact, we have we have lost a couple of friends along the way. Oh my God, we have. That's at, true. Now that I think of it, but um, but uh, you know, <laughs> and they know who they are, God, and they're not God, listening to this. God bless. Yeah, there are people who, when when you edit them, they say thank you, and some of them mean it, and some of them are just professionals, and they know to say to thank their editor, make try to make their editor feel feel good, and they're seething in the background, and then some people seethe right in front of you. And refuse to let you move forward. A lot of times it's academics, and sometimes they have the academic disease, which is they spend 90% of their time being the smartest person in the room, and so they always assume they're the smartest person in the room, and anytime you try to correct them, they just assume you're wrong. Uh, and so it's really difficult to edit. Um, how, do you, how do you move forward when you have an impasse with somebody who, uh, who will not change? There are times when I have to say, you know what, I think that we're not going to agree on this, um, and therefore probably we're not the best place for you. It's not and, that hard to do, really. And, then, and most of the time, they all of a sudden think that what I'm suggesting is not so bad. I am not an academic, and Tom is. But I should say I have encountered a lot of academics who really do want to learn how to write to absolutely, a larger audience. Absolutely. They know that their writing is somewhat ghettoized. It's never going to, you know, be, be read. read by a wide audience. <laughs> and they're ha and they want to be shown how to, uh, you know, relax certain phrases and modes of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. But friends, you know, are tricky in general. I mean, you in Hollywood, you run into this all of the time. Sure. Yeah, of course. Well, you develop uh, as a writer, you know, you develop friendly relationships with certain producers and they're often in the position if you're working with them, they're in the position to give you notes and you may or may not agree. But it's on the other hand, it's always a gift when you have a smart producer because they'll make it better. And ultimately, as, as a writer, that's... That really is all a writer needs to be thinking about. How can this be better? Because all credit will redound to them, ultimately. Of course. Of no course. one reads a piece and says, oh, it was so brilliantly edited. <laughs> it's hard for me to understand how people don't get that. It seems so basic. But there are times where you come in and you've got a script about um, Jewish settlers in Nebraska in the 1890s, and they say, well, can we make it uh, aliens on Mars? Yeah, and then you say, uh, sure, and uh, maybe they should solve crimes <laughs> as well. And then this thing will have six sequels. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Nikki Giovanni, Maria Bustios, 
And thanks to our friend Dinah Lenny, the generous support of the Gold Hirsch Foundation. As always, our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin. My name is Seth Greenland, and for Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported L.A. Review of Books. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. We will see you next week. It's a date. <laughs> <laughs>